few songs hold a place in people's heads like The Devil Went Down to Georgia. It's a perfect mix of storytelling, virtuosity, and crossover appeal that hasn't happened the same way since the Charlie Daniels Band released the song in the spring of 1979. A classic tale of a man beating the supernatural. A simple story on the surface, but one with many layers running deep into the roots of Southern music. A composition borrowing many musical passages from its past and keeping it going into the future. Quality often imitated, but never duplicated. But how deep of a dive can we get on this icon of bluegrass and southern rock? And what other subtext and meaning can we pull out of this song? Well, let's find out on The Tim Gavin Show, a holistic look at music and pop culture. The Devil Went Down to Georgia is a perfect storm of music and mythology, reaching not only from country and bluegrass, but into the heart of American music itself, and a spirit of wanting to be the greatest. In the interviews that I've seen Charlie Daniels do about the song, he said that writing it was very spur of the moment. The album was almost done, but they needed a fiddle song. And the story and lyrics just flowed out when Charlie Daniels recalled a poem that he'd read in high school called The Mouse and Whippoorwill. But despite its spontaneity, I think that there is a lot more that went into crafting the song, and not all of it was country music. To get to the heart of the story, we need to look into two different areas. The early days of the American blues and into German Renaissance folklore, all centered around a man named Faust and his deal with the devil. Now, the story of someone making a deal with the devil has been around as long as religion has. But the legend of Faust is one of the more fleshed-out versions of this myth. Based on the 15th century alchemist Johann George Faust, it's the story of a man who is highly successful, but still dissatisfied, always making him want more. In early versions of the story, Faust is bored and depressed, and he calls on the devil for more knowledge and for powers to allow him all the pleasure and knowledge of the world, with the devil taking his soul in exchange, with tragedy or redemption at the end depending on who interprets this myth. The most popular telling of the Faust legend is through the two-part play Geth's Faust, considered to be one of the greatest works of German literature. Faust and the concept of deals with the devil would go on to inspire a lot of songs as well. Randy Newman interpreted Geth's Faust as a rock opera starring Don Henley, James Taylor, and Linda Ronstadt, and Gorillaz, Muse, Cradle of Filth, and Radiohead all have songs directly about Faust. Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen is said to be inspired by it as well, but many more artists were indirectly inspired by a very similar myth involving Robert Johnson, the Delta blues icon who is said to have sold his soul to the devil on a crossroads to become the best blues guitarist ever. As more and more people learned about Robert Johnson, many more people also heard the rumors about him selling his soul, which added to the appeal to the mythos of blues music. Early rock stars like the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, Fleetwood Mac, and Led Zeppelin were all very open about his influence, which just added fuel to the fire of rock and roll being the devil's music. Seeing all this historical context has really almost made me come to a conclusion about The Devil Went Down to Georgia, that it is very subtly an anti-rock and roll song, or at least a song that implies a claim that traditional music is better than modern music. Maybe not on purpose, but it's a meaning that I've interpreted from looking at this song and some of the history behind it. Now just hear me out. The reasoning behind it is right in the music itself. Note that when the devil starts playing, it basically sounds like a hard rock band with some fiddle over it. Charlie Daniels is also on record claiming that the devil's fiddle playing is quote-unquote just noise, not as memorable as Johnny's playing. 
Plus, when Johnny plays the fiddle, he leans into that traditional southern bluegrass sound and mentions some of those southern standards by name in the lyrics. Chicken in the bread pan, a line from Ida Red, Granny Will Your Dog Bite, Fire on the Mountain, and of course, House of the Rising Sun. All a part of that songbook of the South, though not playing them directly, it is still in the lyrics. Johnny sticks with virtuosity through the lens of tradition, winning the contest and claiming to be the best. The song is structured around a traditional fiddle song as well, called Lonesome Fiddle Blues, composed by Vassar Clements, dubbed the father of hillbilly jazz, borrowing elements of jazz and fusing them with bluegrass and swing music. Charlie Daniels took the basic structure of the song, moved all the notes an octave up, added lyrics, and the rest is history. Well, there is a lot of history that came in the wake of this song too. It was Charlie Daniels' biggest hit, going number one on the Canadian and US country charts, the top 20 over in the UK, Ireland, and New Zealand, and it was a number three on the Billboard Hot 100, beaten only by After the Love Is Gone by Earth, Wind, and Fire, and My Sharona by The Knack. Not to mention all the covers that people have done over the years. One of the earliest coming from a 1980 episode of The Muppet Show, when Jim Henson's team recorded the story in the opening of episode 420. And speaking of 420, there are also a lot of parodies as well. A couple decades later, one parody of The Devil Went Down to Georgia would start going around file sharing sites and around YouTube as well, called The Devil Went Down to Jamaica, where the fiddle duel is replaced by the devil and Johnny smoking each other's weed. Most times when people share this song, they falsely claim it's either by David Allen Coe or Weird Al Yankovic, and looking into both of their back catalogs, I can safely say that neither of them are the real writers or performers of the songs. And honestly, if you listen to that song back to back with either artist, it sounds nothing like them. But I don't know for sure who actually made this parody. The closest thing I've found is a lot of people out there claiming that a musician named Travis Meyer did it, but I cannot for the life of me find a source or more information on Travis Meyer. So I will not claim anything except who did not make the song. Robot Chicken and Futurama have also featured parodies of The Devil Went Down to Georgia as well. But most often bands and artists will just cover it. But most of the notable covers have been done by rock bands. British bands The Levelers and The Toy Dolls have reinterpreted the song throughout the 90s, Alternative band Primus have also covered the song and made a claymation stop-motion music video for it, including it as a bonus track on the 1998 EP Rhinoplasty. Blues Traveler have also covered it live as well. But this song had its biggest resurgence in the 2000s, when it was re-recorded for the final battle in Guitar Hero 3, introducing a lot of people to the song and, by extension, to Charlie Daniels' music, if they decided to dig just a little deeper. But Charlie Daniels did not like this version on the grounds that in Guitar Hero, the devil might win, which goes against the point of the song, according to him. But now in 2020, two more covers have come out within a few weeks of each other, with both Korn and Nickelback releasing covers as singles over this summer. The only thing is, neither of them are any good, but you can get my full opinion on those by listening to some of the music meeting episodes that we've done on the Tim Gavin Show. And a lot of people don't know this, but there is a sequel as well. Back in 1993, fiddle player Mark O'Connor worked with Charlie Daniels on The Devil Comes Back to Georgia, all about the devil wanting to try again and coming on back. Thought it's a little unclear on who won that rematch until you see the music video. And by the way, that music video is super weird, but this song is definitely worth checking out just because of who won it. Mark O'Connor and Charlie Daniels take on the fiddle playing, which is as fantastic as ever. Johnny Cash narrates the song, Marty Stewart plays Johnny, and Travis Tritt plays the devil. As far as sequels go, while not memorable, 
If you want more Devil Went Down to Georgia, it's a nice follow-up and sounds pretty consistent to the original. One of the things that sticks out most to me about The Devil Went Down to Georgia is that there really isn't anything else like it, at least not on the same level. I mean, as Guitar Hero proved back in the late 2000s, dueling instruments is something that people are into, but you don't hear many songs specifically for it. The only songs that come close to this are both for movies, and one was another bluegrass song, Dueling Banjos, on the Deliverance soundtrack. The other, a track called The Duel, was made by Steve Vai for the 1986 movie Crossroads starring Ralph Macchio. And again, that kind of ties more into the whole mythology surrounding Robert Johnson. And the song was also not included on that movie's original soundtrack, but instead made for a rarities compilation Steve Vai put out in 2002. A lot of metal bands also have dueling solos on their songs, but not a single song dedicated to it. A lot of the time, bands just tend to stick with The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and as good as it is, I do wish that there were more new songs like it. Hopefully this got you a little more interested in The Devil Went Down to Georgia, but now I wanted to talk about something else. What goes on in the world has a big impact on the music that's made and heard around the world, and sometimes one event can cause such a massive upheaval, you might not look at some music the same way ever again. And that's what happened roughly 19 years ago after the September 11th attacks. That day near single-handedly shaped a lot of the world we live in today, and I want to talk a little about the music that came out that day and what happened with other songs in the aftermath. Things got really weird in the wake of 9-11. Everyone was on edge, mourning the countless losses of the attacks. And also on that week, a lot of album releases made for some of the biggest oofs in pop culture history. And one of the longest lasting and least funny jokes about a band that got their big break the month before. On August 21st, 2001, Nickelback released How You Remind Me, the lead single off of their upcoming third album, Silver Side Up. They'd already had some modest success before, but this song got really big really fast, reaching the number one spot on December and staying there for four weeks, later becoming the most played song on the radio in the US that decade. And Silver Side Up became one of the biggest albums that year as well. Two things ended up happening to them because of that release date. For a lot of people, Silver Side Up was an album that people listened to to help grieve, cope, and process their emotions after 9-11. And the other thing that happened was people started comparing them to 9-11 itself. And that wasn't the only huge album released that day. The one album that beat Silver Side Up on the charts was Jay-Z's sixth album, The Blueprint, which was considered to be one of his best albums and one of the greatest hip-hop albums ever made. Known for launching the major successes of producers Just Blaze and Kanye West, who produced four of the album's tracks, this release shifted hip-hop production towards more soul music and heavier use of sampling, setting the tone for what hip-hop would go and do going forward even into today. Aside from those two albums, there wasn't much that got critical acclaim. In fact, thanks to some delays and poor timing, Slayer walked into some controversy with the album that they put out on 9-11. It was their ninth album, God Hates Us All, which was recorded in Brian Adams' warehouse studio in Vancouver over three months in the spring of 2001. The original release date was July 10th, but due to some issues with the album's mixing, their label, and with the album cover, it caused the release date to get moved to September 11th. The original album art featured a defaced Bible, which, in my opinion, was one of their more mild album covers, and instead featured a much more pleasant, yet somehow more sinister-looking slipcover, that was added for the final release. The album is a fan favorite still, 
But the timing of the release coupled with the album title did cause some upset among other people after the tragedy. There was also some new Slayer t-shirts that came out that day too, which had God Hates Us All 91101 in a big bold font, getting many young metalheads in trouble all over the world. And what's even crazier is that the album's title God Hates Us All wasn't the first choice of titles for that album. It was originally supposed to be called Soundtrack to the Apocalypse, which somehow seems even more inappropriate. And even crazier than that, Slayer wasn't the one that made the biggest yikes in the music industry that week. In fact, a different metal band did that. Progressive Metal Titan's Dream Theater just released a triple live album, Live Scenes from New York that day, recorded in August of the year 2000 at the Roseland Ballroom. Unlike Slayer, the problem wasn't with the music itself, but with the album's original cover. The first pressings of this live album featured a big apple wrapped in barbed wire, topped with the Statue of Liberty and the World Trade Center, all engulfed in flames. This pressing of the album was only in stores that week because unsold copies were very quickly recalled to be given new artwork following what happened. But there are some used copies with the original artwork that still pop up once in a while and are considered collector's items, often going for more than 100 bucks. Dream Theater would later create a song inspired by the attacks called Sacrifice Sons, included on 2005's Octavarium. A quick save to fix an unintentional faux pas, but that wasn't the only album cover that year that had the World Trade Center on it either. American rap duo The Coup were gearing up to release their fourth album Party Music towards the end of September, but it was again pushed back because of the album art, which depicted Boots Riley and Pan the Funkstress destroying the Twin Towers using what appeared to be a detonator, but was actually a guitar tuner. The Coup have always been a very politically charged group, and chose the artwork purely for the powerful imagery. The frontman Boots Riley wanted to keep the cover. He said he wanted to keep it intact because he wanted people to consider that it wasn't only foreign terrorists, but also the US that have committed atrocious acts. But ultimately the cover was changed, but not before copies with the original cover were sent out to members of the press and a few distributors. Those weren't the only changes that happened after 9-11. Following the attacks, iHeartMedia, which was known back then as Clear Channel, sent out an internal memo with a list of songs to program directors for radio stations around the US that felt a little lyrically questionable, referring to subjects that could be potentially associated with the attacks, like airplanes, collisions, death, war, violence, stuff like that. There were 165 suggestions made, including handfuls of songs by ACDC, Pat Benatar, The Beatles, The Cult, Drowning Pool, Elton John, Metallica, Pink Floyd, and Rage Against the Machine's entire back catalog. There is a myth that I wanted to address here though. A lot of people assume that this list was an outright ban on these songs, but it wasn't. It was just a suggestion to avoid these songs for the time being, and if you look at the list, there are still a lot of songs on it that get regular airplay still. And what happened with the music industry was definitely the least crazy thing that went down after 9-11, but it's still something that I find very interesting. And it's definitely a good case study on why making changes like this is understandable and still happens pretty often nowadays as well. If you like what you hear, subscribe, binge the rest of the episodes, and like and follow my social media pages. You can share this with another music lover in your life as well, and don't forget to check the show notes for more sources and other extras. I'm Tim Gavin, and I'll talk to you next time.